The views and opinions expressed on this show belong solely to the hosts and their guests and do not reflect the views of any onside institutions unless explicitly stated. What's up, everybody? My name is Steve Vandewal. And I'm Justin Klosser. And, and we're, we're your hosts, hosts of Cannabis, cannabis Cum, Laude, Cum Laude, a podcast devoted entirely to cannabis. We're going to talk cultivation, business, medicine, politics, culture, advocacy, and everything in between. The cannabis industry is complicated. It's robust. It has a lot of moving parts, and it's our job to help you understand it just a little bit better. So tune in every week for a brand new episode. And if you have a question that you'd like answered on the show, send it on over to questions at CannabisCumLaude.com. Thanks. Enjoy the show. Welcome back to CCL, everybody. We're back here with Dr. Heather Grab from Cornell University. And for this part, we're going back to her roots, entomology, and we're going to be discussing bees and hemp. Before we dive into that, though, dang, Fitz, can I cut that out and start over? I'm sorry, because no, you answered this question last, like on the last episode. Well, let me piggyback, because I didn't want to interrupt you, but I'm kind of a dummy. I'm not a plant expert by any means. What at a high level is entomology? Oh, yeah. So we, we should we should for sure cover that. Yeah. Yep. Uh, entomology is just a fancy word for the study of bugs, you know, I one of the many wow. ologies out there. So, wow, I didn't yeah. know that. Study of insects. Oh, I mean, insects. really, insects, insects. You know, bugs are I one bugs. family. Yeah. <laughs> you can tell I'm a very tolerant scientist. I'm not like strict oh, definitions for we, anything. I mean, I expect people to know them, but I don't, you know, enforce them on. We people. talked to uh, uh, Berna, who mentioned Rob Wink over at FLCC, and he is like a stickler. Like, he's like, uh, which it's great, though, right? I mean, I left there feeling like I actually knew most of the, I think we went over. I feel like I'm going to misspeak 12 orders and then like 40 families within those orders or something like that. And it was pretty intense. Yeah. Um, I mean, I love insects. They're insanely diverse creatures. And I mean, that even shows up in, in the paper with yeah, the yeah. bees that we're going to talk about. Definitely. Um, so with a former student at the uh, Poveda lab at Cornell, Nathaniel Ryan Flicker, you were able to publish the bee community of cannabis sativa and corresponding effects of landscape composition. We'll put a link to that in the show notes so that everybody can find it. Um, can you tell me a little bit about what inspired you guys to, to conduct this study? Yeah, I would say the inspiration for this really came from a lot of observations from growers and folks mm. who had plants out in the field who had noticed that when the male plants are around, they are buzzing with bees. I mean, any if you go to any fiber or grain field, that is one of the first things that you will notice really? is just there's a hum of bees everywhere. So people were wondering what's going on with the bees. Why are they visiting the plants? What are they doing? Should we do we need to be concerned about pollination? Do we need to be concerned that the bees are consuming this plant? So it was that observation that really triggered us to take a look and to try to learn more. So in my background, working with pollinators in a bunch of other crops within the region, I was also curious to see whether or not this might be a good resource for bees. So we had been doing uh, another project around the same time that identified uh, gaps in floral resource availability. So mm -hmm. everybody, you know, is worried about pollinators. There's a lot of different things that are associated with the decline of mm -hmm. bees. But one among many is just that there we're losing floral resources within the landscape. Industrialization. So areas of natural habitat that have a lot of flowers, even areas like roadside edges, if we're mowing and managing those, 
we're losing a lot of the flowers or intensive um, pasture management that might remove things like weeds from the landscape. So loss of floral resources can be really bad. And particularly in the summer season, that's when we saw the lowest amount of floral resources around. So that's work that I did with a colleague, Aaron Iverson. He developed a sort of a floral resource map for the region Mm. that maps where floral resources might be through time so that people can think about, you know, where might I want to establish an apiary or if I'm growing a pollinator dependent crop, so a crop that needs bees and insects to move pollen around in order to get good fruit set like strawberries, I might want to do a little bit of a survey of what's going on around my farm to see if I will have enough bees to begin with, or maybe I need to contract with somebody to bring some bees onto my farm. Mm -hmm. So I was thinking like maybe if midsummer is a gap, if farmers start to incorporate hemp grain and hemp fiber into their rotations, we're going to see more of this crop. It's flowering in midsummer at a point when bees might not have a lot of other resources around. So this could actually be good news for bees. Yeah, especially if you you have a lot of acres, you could also, you know, not companion plant in the sense like hemp right next to it. But like if you had surrounding high pollinate, you know, uh, crops that, you know, fruits, like you said, strawberries, and you had a hemp field in the middle of it, I mean, on top of all the things that it does for the soil and it does for carbon fixation, I mean, to have a bee sanctuary around flower and plants, it seems like a no-brainer to me. Is that fair? That is the same line of reasoning that we were thinking, too. So a second part of that project that hasn't been published yet is actually looking at the diversity of species that we found visiting hemp. And looking at how many of those bees we know are really important pollinators of other crops in Mm. the region. So looking at the overlap with crops like strawberry, apple, which is huge within the region, Mm -hmm. uh, cucurbit crops like squashes, zucchinis, pumpkins, blueberries, all these other crops. And long story short, even things like tomato share a huge Mm -hmm. proportion of their most important pollinators with hemp. So it's possible that by you know, increasing the cover of hemp crops on the landscape, we might actually support beneficial insects like pollinators that are then going to be able to have a robust population moving into the following year for pollination of crops in the next spring. Something that really concerns me, just because it was brought up twice there in that discussion, um, is strawberries and hemp next to each other. Strawberries are notorious for always having spider mites. Spider mites are like one of the things you really want to try and avoid with a cannabis crop. Like they're, they're really, they're one of the things that are harder to, to eradicate for lack of a better word. You never really can eradicate. Right. But, um, I think it would be interesting to actually do trials of putting them next to each other to see if a strawberry could almost serve as like a banker plant, right? To like Yeah, yeah, yeah. So one thing um, from the pest level, you're totally right. I also had this thought. I don't know if you you guys are familiar or if your you know viewers or listeners are familiar with this little tiny bug called the tarnished plant bug. Mm. I spent a lot of my time in my PhD staring at this bug and squishing it and looking at its DNA and who was eating it and yeah, but that one, super abundant on grain crops. I mean, it'll eat, it loves to just eat developing seeds. It's the major pest of strawberries in the region, and it loves hemp grain. And since we don't have insecticides that can control this pest in grain crops, it might actually be a source of pests. And I think that's you know an area that we need to be looking into, again, as we're 
expanding the coverage of hemp crops across the region, but not so worried about spider mites for the reason that in outdoor production systems, at least, spider mites don't tend to be a huge issue Mm. for strawberries, mostly because, you know, in this region, at least, it's wet enough that it's not really the ideal conditions for their populations unless you're using, you know, small row covers or growing them in a high tunnel, that kind of thing. We don't tend to see those causing a lot of damage or even on outdoor hemp, mm. they tend not to be a big deal. Hey, I'm I'm an indoor guy, so I guess yeah, call me true. ignorant. But I mean, that same <laughs> principle that you that you were thinking about the spider mites, I think that's totally true for, for other pests and potentially yeah. even some diseases and like I, botrytis. I just I just Googled uh, this thing real quick while you're talking about it to refresh my memory. Um, and it, it could probably be mistaken for like a stink bug. You know, they're pretty, pretty similar to uh, that in shape and size. And so like you might not even know you have them. But anyway, um, I, I'd be curious to see like if you is there like a pre- is there preference in if you have all these, you know, pollinating crops grains strawberries or whatever if you were to like you know this might be a bit elementary line them all up do certain species tend to gravitate more towards one than the other and why why would is that is that a phenomenon so i think that question brings up a really important point about hemp hemp especially the male plants you know only actually only the male plants provide pollen and that's what the bees are going for but hemp does not provide any nectar. Yeah. So that is one component that we still need to have within the landscape for bees because bees need both pollen and nectar in order to thrive. So for example, at our big trial plots that we grow, usually somewhere in the vicinity, there's buckwheat because buckwheat's an excellent Mm. cover crop or red clover, some other Mm -hmm. crop that's going to provide abundant nectar. And in fact, I was out at our fiber trial this morning. It's buzzing with honeybees and bumblebees and the huge stand of buckwheat that's right next to it that's providing tons of nectar Nah, the bees so are much. like, they're not so much interested in that. They're really seeming to prefer hemp pollen for whatever reason. Do bees, is there nectar in the female cannabis and flowering no, female that, cannabis plants? No, that's what she was just saying. No, yeah. Okay. So um, there is one possibility of why bees might go to a female flower. That's not something that we observed really in our study. We really just saw, even in mixed stand plantings, bees learn very quickly. They're pretty smart creatures. They associate, you know, the shape, the color, Mm -hmm. the scent even of a male flower with that pollen reward. And then they're going to focus all their effort on that. But bees do, especially honeybees, will collect substances from plants, from trichomes and resins in order to build a product called propolis in their hive, which can protect them from microbial infection. I mean, they use it to hold up the structure of their hive. And there have been studies that have shown that they are incorporating cannab- you know, cannabinoids are showing up in this propolis. So potentially there are rare cases where bees might collect a little bit of those resinous trichomes and incorporate them into that kind of a substance. So pollination is a minor risk, but not like you're not expecting your bees to be all over. I would say plant. I would say it's very minor. And in fact, if you see bees in your field, you are, you probably have already a have plant. a problem yeah. because the wind has already moved yeah. way more pollen than those bees are ever True. going to. 
Fair in enough. fact, they might actually be helping you by removing a bunch of the right. pollen so right. that the wind isn't going to move it to your plant. Okay. But That's yeah, if you're growing for cannabinoids, you still should be out there just you know, growing checking your field and yeah. rocking. <laughs> yeah, roguing your plants. Unless you're unless you're trialing out some of those uh, new triploid cultivars. Oh, unpollinatable so, or something? Yeah, or supposedly? seedless. Seedless. Interesting. Okay. Um, so getting back to the study, because we definitely took a huge, I mean, we kind of segued back there nicely, but we took a huge detour there. Um, in the uh, methods of the paper that I read, it was talking about your collection method, and you used a sweep net method. Can you kind of explain what that is is like to do that um and maybe kind of in the same sense like no i'll save that question go ahead yeah no i guess my i would say for the listeners um if you just envision in your mind the stereotypical entomologist which is like somebody out there with their bug net and their little vials i mean that's what we were doing we were showing up on hemp farms with our little insect nets and our little jars, and we were out there sweeping up the plants and trying to catch the bees. And the reason why we we do that is because there's actually a huge diversity of native bees. So New York State alone has around 400 species of bees. Most people, when they think bees, they mostly think honeybee, which is actually not native to North America. That was, we transported that over with us from Europe. Or they might think bumblebees, which are native. But there is just a wild diversity of different bees and they're super hard to identify unless you can look at them under a microscope. So we were netting the bees and bringing them back to the lab with us in order to get a good ID. And then what? Well, Part of it is, I mean, part of it is just looking at them under the microscope and just observing their pure beauty. I mean, most of the, I encourage you to pay attention, like go outside and find a flower and look at the cool kinds of bees that are out there. Probably some of those bees are the same ones that are visiting male hemp plants. So tiny, itty bitty little bees in the genus Lasioglossum, commonly called sweat bees. You might Mm -hmm. see them land on your arm every once in a while. They actually have a little bit of like a green metallic shimmer to them. We have some that are like race car green, beautiful, blue colored bees Mm -hmm. out there. Bees with racing stripes on them. I mean, yeah, very cool different kinds of bees that we're finding visiting hemp. In addition to, of course, our common bumblebees and honeybees. So once we brought them back to the lab and we figured out what set of species is present at a site, then we can compare across sites and say, why does this farm with these plants have eight different species of bees present versus this one over here, which just had one species of bee present on it? So that's the next step. And and like in that process, there is an Maybe it's not complicated for people who are heavily involved in the entomology world, but there is a process that is really not that easy to do. And if you mess it up, it's going to make identifying your specimen incredibly hard, and that's pinning these insects so that you can actually see them. You got Some of these insects you have to have a microscope to even be able to see. So imagine trying to put a pin through that without ruining its body parts. Like, yeah. it's... That's classic entomology. I was a little bit tempted to bring in my pinned collection of bees 
from the project to show off to you guys. But then I was like, oh man, that's too. I should I should tone it down and oh, not that be been such awesome. a That's okay. Nerd. Though. We could have nerded out hard. Yeah. <laughs> um, I'm always, you know, I, I enjoy all types of, of cannabis farming and farming in general, whether it's the organics, whether it's indoor hydroponics, outdoor inorganic. Um, and obviously pest management, uh, is very important. And the last thing that any of us want to do, and we talk about sustainability and, and, you know, who cares if we have a hundred billion dollar industry for ruining our planet, then what are we doing? Um, but pest management is very important. How do you go about, you know, what are some pet management practices that you can include that aren't going to disrupt the bee population? Yeah, that's um, an excellent point. And I think one of the just areas of awareness that our study created is that there are a bunch of bees out there. So as we're thinking about developing pest management practices for these, you know, for this crop, how do we do that in a way that integrates the fact that there are going to be bees there? If there are male plants, and we have to think about protecting those. So most pesticide labels uh, have, you know, warnings and guidance on them that suggests not spraying crops when flowers are open. But I mean, you guys know male plants, they don't have the showiest flowers out there. So there has to be a little bit of education on like, yeah, these are actual flower flowers that are attracting beneficial things. So thinking about um, timing of applications or how you choose, if you do need to make an application, what products that you're going to use that might be soft on beneficials, but still effective against whatever it is that you are trying to control. I would really love to talk to you sometime about that whole conversation. I feel like that's a rabbit hole we don't need to dive down right now, but I, it really boggles my mind how something can be okay for beneficials, but not for something that's very similarly composed. Yeah. Um, I mean, entomologists, so many entomologists have spent so many lifetimes developing uh, different you know, materials and products that take advantage of the fact that insects really are super, super diverse. Mm. So there might be some compounds that are really effective against caterpillars and caterpillars only because of their unique physiology that aren't really going to bother very much this parasitoid wasp that also might be there providing control against those caterpillars and keeping them at low levels till you need to make an application if there is you know, conditions that might cause an outbreak. So there's a lot of you know, techniques that you can apply to make good choices about pest management. In addition to just, you know, making sure that you have really good cultural controls in place, that you're making sure you keep the environment in such a way that you're not promoting pests or diseases and thinking about things like timing and cultivar choice so that you are choosing varieties that are resistant and that perform really well in the conditions that you're in. Absolutely. Um, so we keep talking about bringing up these male flowers and I'm sure it's making any one of our grower uh, listeners kind of cringe as we're talking about it. Um, I I know that there's like, uh, it, it is wind pollinated anyways. If there's going to be a grain and fiber crop in the area, you're already going to have to deal with it. Can you remind me what that r- radius is that it's like that pollen can travel and still stay viable? Yeah. And I think this question is even more relevant as we're considering the fact that home grow is going to become a feature within New York State, which is 
excellent. I'm so happy that we're yeah. going down that route. But now you got to think about the fact that like your neighbor who might be growing for the very first time, maybe they've never even grown any plants before. And all of a sudden they're going to have like six different plants from seeds of like, I don't know where they got them from their cousin somewhere. Yeah. And half of them might be male. And they might, you know, have no idea how to identify male and female plants. And they'll be really happy to show you their amazing male plants that they're growing in their backyard right across from you. Like, these are things that we all need to to think about and keep in mind. So the good thing is there is some some good data out there on how far pollen can travel. And I would say, you know, a few hundred meters is probably a, a quite a reasonable estimate for what might be the distance where you need to be concerned. Of really? course— if you, you know, have a huge fiber production, the source is going to be really mm. big. Mm-hmm. So you know, it's going to travel farther. But you can also think about things like features in the landscape, like hedges or even buildings that might potentially be a barrier to that and are going to slow down some of that pollen movement across space. So it's not a necessarily a one-size-fits-all. There's definitely stories out there where, you know, you hear about pollen traveling for miles. And I think right. under ideal conditions, yeah, that's that's possible. But hemp, hemp pollen, though, if if I'm not remembering incorrectly, is pretty it, it's pretty exposed. Right. It's like it doesn't really have a whole lot of like a protective coat or something like a conifer that's going to be able to kind of withstand the harshness of the winter if it needs to and before it actually germinates. Um is that right? That it's I actually, like- you know, I actually haven't seen anything on like viability time. Okay. So there's a lot of work out there. I'm sure it exists. I just haven't seen it. But you know, that's always that's like the really fun thing about being in hemp and cannabis is it's just so there's floor. so much to know and there's so much new information being created all the time that like I don't want to discount that it's not already out there. I'm sure somebody is like right now being like, oh, there's this paper over here, but. Yeah, I think that's also a, a big component is how much humidity is in the air. What's the sunlight conditions like that might actually, you know, reduce the viability of pollen even if it does move. So all pollen is not the same? No. Well, no, and actually some pollen, some plants can pollinate themselves. Some plants, their mm-hmm. pollen is set up that it can't pollinate themselves. Some have to be pollinated specifically by something else. There's actually some fungi, which not to get too crazy, that actually require two different plants. This is mostly rust fungi to be able to complete their life cycle. They have to like bounce between, oh man, I might, I think I'm going to mess this up, but maybe not. Uh, So there's a rust fungus called cedar apple rust that bounces between cedars and apples. And it cannot sexually reproduce without having both yeah sources. wow now we're going to from pollen to spores yeah, we're going all over yeah, the place but yeah, yeah i would encourage all your listeners to google uh what pollen looks like under yeah. the microscope because every plant has a little bit of a different shape and structure to the surface of its pollen and some of them are beautiful like the geometry of them yep. cute look at look at squash pollen it's huge and it's so spiky like why <laughs> what do you i mean i think it's actually so that bees and things don't it sticks to yeah it's different it's got interesting chemistry to it there's you know a lot of really cool biology going on with pollen and in fact in hemp pollen there are actually low levels of cannabinoids so from a beekeeper's perspective you know they may want to have some hemp on the landscape as a source of pollen for their bees 
But then they also need to be concerned with what they're doing with their hive products because their wax, their propolis, their yeah. honey may end up with, with really trace yeah. levels of cannabinoids in it. Do do bees use pollen for nutrition? Yeah, pollen is an excellent source of protein. So bees are kind of like, from an evolutionary perspective, they are like wasps that like to eat pollen exclusively. Okay. Well, it's interesting because we've started, you know, there's a lot of new animal studies coming out with chickens and cows and stuff using hemp-based stuff or grain for feed. Mm -hmm. And we're seeing, you know, increased uh, integrity and quality of products. I'm wondering what happens, you know, over the course of years as these bees start to pollinate and eat this hemp fiber do they have physical changes? Are they more health? You know, it's interesting because probably there's, yes, we're probably going to see some evolutionary change mm -hmm. now that this type of fiber is so readily, or this pollen is so readily available. Uh, it's just going to be interesting to see kind of the development of the bee as it coincides with the development of, you know, the hemp industry. Yeah, it's for really sure. And I think that's a, you know, differences in levels of protein is a mechanism that might explain the observation that you brought up earlier about why bees might favor yeah. hemp flowers relative to flowers yeah. of other plants that provide both nectar and pollen. Yeah. Yeah. If it's more nutritious, you're going to go where the food source is, right? Mm -hmm. So, um, Or maybe it mediates interactions with your microbes that are important yeah. for your development. The story, the, the short of it is there's a lot to be researched so far. You know, we're really just starting to scratch uh, the tip of the iceberg and uh, it's fascinating. It's so interesting. I'm learning so much. So in this study, you guys found 16 different species of bees, which mm -hmm. congrats on being able to identify 16 different species of bees. I had a hard time getting a couple when I was in class. Anyways, um, you also looked at them across different environments. Mm -hmm. And so I'm curious as to what effect that had on like, were the bees all local? Like, was there a huge abundance of them in one area or... Um, like a couple, a couple species or like where they all pretty much across the board? Yeah. So starting out with a big diversity, as I mentioned before, we had bees that were from the, some of the tiniest bees that we have in the state up to the very largest species that we have all visiting hemp. So a big diversity, but not every farm had all of those bees. Okay. So some of the factors that we identified were things that are more like cultural choices that a grower might make. So what kind of cultivars are they planting? Are they really tall fiber varieties where we saw, you know, more pollinators than the shorter varieties that might be more of a grain type cultivar? Also things like weed management within the field can play a role. So if your field is really weedy, then we don't tend to see as many bees on the hemp. And that's probably just because they get distracted also by the weeds uh, compared to a cleaner field that was pretty much just exclusively yep. hemp plants. So in addition to those cultural choices or things that growers might have a little bit more control over, we also saw that factors that were outside of the farm played a big role. So how much agriculture mm -hmm. versus natural habitat was available surrounding okay. the farm that played a big role. And unsurprisingly, as we've seen in many other crops, farms that have more natural habitat around them, whether that's, you know, woodlots or old fields or other mixed kinds of land uses around them and not just strictly farmland everywhere, those farms had the most bees around. Okay. 
And you can see that a little bit in the very last, I think one of the last figures that we had is that some bees were more associated with particular kinds of land use than others. So for example, the carpenter bees, those are some of the biggest bees that we had in the state. Those actually were more common at sites that tended to have more urban cover. So those are the kind of bees that you see nesting in your porch, the ones that fly around in the spring and are, you know, drilling holes in yeah. your porch or your barn or so, wherever. It's like a perfect yeah. three quarters too. It's wild. They love urban habitat. So unsurprisingly, we're seeing those show up more frequently around farms that have more urban area around them. Absolutely. Um, I was really actually confused by that. I was like, wait a minute, more agriculture was less bees. But now that I'm sitting here thinking about really, that means more monocropping and less diversity of plants. So it's supporting a less diversity of life. That makes sense to me. Okay. Um, Sorry to cut you still. No, I was just going to say, I was just uh, checking the time and we're coming up to the end of our hour. Mm -hmm. This has been a, uh, our, our, our second part. Very informative. Thank you so much. Um, I want to know, you know, you had this big study come out. What's next for you in the research realm? Yeah. So I think some of the things that are next are some of the same topics that we touched on really briefly um, in the earlier segment of the episode. So thinking about how insects might be moving around from crop to crop, whether that's bees. So we already published our work showing here's the kinds of bees and how many there are in different kinds of farms. How does that actually relate to what we know are the main pollinators of other crops in the region? Uh, how might pests actually be moving from one crop to another? So we know, you know, corn borer is a huge pest in field-grown hemp. Is there some kind of association spatially on the landscape if you're growing hemp in an area that's traditionally been growing a lot of corn? And of course, we are thinking about hemp as a rotational crop. Right. How can we build strategies to mitigate some of those pest problems so that we can grow hemp in the most sustainable way possible? So I think that's where I'm most excited to go in my research. But I mean, also, again, just bringing the MPS program into yeah. it. I'm super excited to engage in research areas where students who are in that program are excited about. So, you know, some of the students in our program now are working on life cycle assessment. So mm. uh, similar to the work that Haley Summers was doing for indoor grown cannabis, but focusing on fiber cannabis and what kind of products can we develop from fiber cannabis, which is, you know... <clears throat> overall, I would say a much more carbon friendly crop totally. to grow. But a lot of that depends on the products that you are then making yeah. from that fiber itself. Are you putting it into hempcrete for green construction or are you replacing some plastics and building automotive parts from composite products? So thinking about the life cycle of fiber hemp and how that compares to some of the other market segments, like indoor-grown cannabis. It's such a versatile crop, really, at the end of the day. Cannabis in general, I'm saying, as yeah. far as cannabinoids, fiber, grain. But the fiber aspect of it is just such a huge, ex in increasingly expansive. I, I saw a few months ago on LinkedIn that they have hemp batteries now. Like, that's insane. Like first they're building concrete and not only is it breathable and insulated and it's fire resistant yeah, and yeah, yeah. Uh, less carbon footprint to build, but now now they can have a power storage unit. With, it's just yeah, insane it, to me. There was something about the innards of hemp 
I yeah. don't know if it's the herd or something yeah, that they're the, used. Yeah, the fiber, you know, different types, uh, yeah. both the like outer long fibers, which we call bast, and the inner woody core, which we call herds or shives. Um, those can be used as a substitute for graphene, which is, you know, it, that's really intensive to extract and develop. And, you know, fiber hemp might provide a nice sustainable alternative to that. Yeah. That actually has some, you know, beneficial properties. <laughs> yeah, I think a lot of, you know, I think, you know, a lot of people in our industry who get it, we often say, you know, hemp cannabis is going to save the world. And people who don't get it are like, yeah, okay, sure. But when you start to look at it from like, you know, a cannabinoid, a medical perspective, and then you look at it from an industrious perspective, when you start to look at plastic replacements, fossil fuel replacements, battery replacements, all the things that are primary mm-hmm. contributors to climate change that if we don't reverse, we're, you know, the world is going to turn, you know, even uglier than it is, you really can start to say, while it might not be, you know, the golden, you know, the golden ticket, hemp can really, and cannabis can really play a major role in uh, making the world a better place from, you know, medicine to agriculture to, you know, you know, communities. It's a, it really is a remarkable plant. And uh, I thank you so much for sharing uh, your expertise with us. I hope you'll come on the show again. Oh, thanks for having me. I'm excited to come back anytime. Absolutely. It was a blast. I wish we could have honestly spent probably another hour and a half to two hours breaking down that paper because there is a lot more that I have here that we could have dove into, but it is what it is. Well, you, um, you did say you're re- releasing a part two of the paper soon. That's the plan Okay, is to, is to delve into that part two. So yeah. Let's come back on for that. Yeah. Yeah. We should awesome. definitely do that. Maybe we can, uh, is, was that with the same student? Yep. Yep. Maybe we same, can have him join you. Uh, Dr. Katia Poveda, who's in entomology and Nate Flicker. Um, we're going to hopefully get that third one or that second segment out here pretty soon. Yeah. Awesome. We could do a round table or something. That'd be awesome. Yeah. Nerd out a bit. Super excited for that. Um, thanks everybody for tuning into another episode. This has been Dr. Heather Grab from Cornell university. Thank you. Thank, thank you, you so, much. so much for joining us today. It's been a wonderful conversation. Love the in-studio chats. Seriously. So much better. Um, if you want to be in the show, come out here and hang out with us on the studio. Cause it's yeah, way better. Absolutely. Um, so, you know, I got to do it. If you want to support the show financially, head on over to www.patreon.com forward slash cannabis cum laude. Uh, you can't actually search it in the show, uh, in the search bar there. So you're going to have to either type that in or find the link in the show notes. And as always, remember to elevate your state of mind. Peace. Thanks to our friends here at Rockbox Recording and Production in Rochester, New York. They are a full professional podcast and video studio designed by a radio guy for podcasters. Audio, video, voiceovers, editing, whatever. Mouth off at Rockbox at rockbox.com. You can follow Cannabis Cum Laude on LinkedIn, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and Cannabis. Type Cannabis Cum Laude into your search bar and you should be able to find us, but the links will also be posted in the episode notes as well. If you want to help support the show, head on over to Patreon, and that will ensure that we're able to keep the best quality sound and video coming to you on a regular basis. And if you liked what you heard today, please don't forget to rate and review the show.